HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Jimmy's number 43 with some very exciting guests who are just passing through New York. Since we could not let them leave town without joining us on Beer Sessions Radio, we asked them to join us at Jimmy's number 43 for a pre-recorded session. I'm feeling very proud to be sitting with Luke Bobo Van Mechelen and uh, Tim Webb and Steve Beaumont. So let's go first to Tim and Steve. Tim and Steve, uh, the authors of the new World Atlas of Beer. Appreciate that you guys are here. So you're kicking off your tour uh, of your book, right? Yeah, this this is the first stop. This is uh, ground ground zero for the uh, for the tour of the World Atlas. Um, we're we're pretty excited about the book. It's it's out in now I think eleven countries in uh, six or seven different languages. So it's uh, it's a pretty exciting endeavor. And Steve, we we know your work from uh, Ale Street News, which I've read, but I know you write for quite a few publications. And Tim, I was looking at your site today. You've written so many great books, Good Beer Guide to Belgium. Um, How did you guys start working together? Um, Well, we kind of met about 15 years ago in a bar in Toronto called Smokeless Joe's by accident because I was there and I was looking for beer. And um, I was in conversation with a guy who owned it, and I said, I write the Good Beer Guide to Belgium. And he said, there's someone you must meet who writes the Good Beer Guide to Canada. And um, that's actually how it began. And uh, then we, we, we kind of, you know, we, we met each other occasionally over about 15 years. Um, we got on quite well. And then out of the blue, I get this phone call which says, would you like to write a world atlas of beer? And um, I thought, no, because I can't do the US, I can't do most of the American part of the world uh, and so I initially turned it down then the next morning I woke up and I said I know how I can do this, I can do this with Steve and uh, so then we spent 18 months working together doing this book. Well that's great and uh, also Bobo from Chimay he's the brand ambassador in the United States for Chimay he's here at the table with us with his New York rep uh, Red from Union Beer 
Uh, Bobo, welcome to the table. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and I'm uh, I'm very glad to see. I never met Tim before, but uh, know of him, and then of course my friend, my Canadian friend here. Uh, it's been a long time since we have seen each other. So, well, thanks. you're a legend, and, and I'm happy to meet you. You, you look well, like your name sounds. You're, you're rugged. You're you know. Yeah. I'm sure you drink a lot of beers, and we've got well, Chimay Reb Red in front of us. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that beer? And well, uh, uh, as as you. Everybody sitting around the table knows about beer. This is one of the... Uh, there's actually eight Trappist monasteries now. There's just a new one that came on board in Austria. Uh, I don't even know the name, to be honest with you. <laughs> Do you, any of you guys know? Well, if, if you want to get technical here, they're, they're not yet a Trappist brewery. Oh, they're not? Okay. No, they have to be approved by the Vatican Council or something, oh, okay. and the Trappists have to put them yeah. forward, but... Uh, that's just trying to get out the idea that I can't remember the name either. They are actually brewing there, though. Um, I know this for a fact. Conrad Seidel, who's Austrian, the the beer papst or beer pope, I was in conversation with him uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and he said that absolutely they are brewing there, they are producing beers. To his view, they're beers that need some age on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll... Of course, all of this is to get out of me forgetting what the name of the place is as yeah, well. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure we can Google it, but I, I already uh, understand that Be United is going to be the importer for, for the United States for the beers, probably limited quantities. Well, I, I've actually been there. Uh, a couple of months ago, I cycled across Europe. because. Uh, oh, cool. uh, well, one of the things, if you're, if you're a beer writer, you've got to do something to um, keep your weight down and stay fit. Yeah, i got so a I, problem I, with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I cycle, and I, and I actually cycled down the Danube, and this, this, mm-hmm. this place that is called Something Cell, uh, I'll get there eventually. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice little monastery. It's directly by the Danube. Um, and I, oh my god I'm not going to get there but yeah yeah, I've actually been to the front door but they didn't yeah. have any beer on sale they said oh, we're going to okay. be brewing again in August so. well, let's, let's go back to I want to just well, get us yeah, going I'll let's talk, talk about Chimay because right? you're like the flagship everybody knows Chimay yeah. it brings people to beer lets them learn about Belgian beer I, I think one of the reasons that Chimay is very well known in the United States is that we, we've been here since 1983 so next year that will be 30 years uh, I ended up in the United States in 1979 because uh, friends of mine, Americans, that studied international law in Brussels, my hometown is Leuven, where Stella Artois is brewed, great university town, great party town. <laughs> so these guys used to come and party in Leuven, and they fell in love with Duvel and Chimay and a bunch of other Belgian beers. And that's where they decided to start an import company that's called Mannequin Brussels Import. And uh, I came to visit them in... 1979, and uh, they talked me to open up uh, the first Belgium bar and restaurant in Austin, Texas. And I did that for about 10 years, and then I started working for Pierre Selles, uh, the father of Ugarden that built the brewery in Austin as a brand manager. And that's pretty much how I got in the, uh, in the beer business. My friends at MBI, uh, 14 years ago, he said, I think we, we got enough money we can afford you now, so you, why don't you come and work for us? And then in 2005, basically, she made one, one importer in the whole United States. It used to be Monacan Brussels, Paterno, and Bellicus, and they, she may ask me to stay on board, and that's, that's why mostly what I do with my time is representing Shimei. What are some upcoming events that you'll be participating in? Well, Red Deer is going to get uh, the... They brewed a, 
uh, a beer, the 150th anniversary beer, uh, because this year Chimez, 150 years old, uh, the brewery is. And uh, so I will be doing events in different bars around the country that will get the 150. Unfortunately, very limited quantity. They only shipped us 2,500 cases, so there's a lot of unhappy people out there. Well, it's great to have, you know, you seem like an authentic beer guy. Well, if it's it's uh, my hometown, Leuven, is uh, is an old Catholic university, and in the old days was the only brewing school in Belgium. Now, of course, you can go to Antwerp, Ghent. There's different brewing schools, but and uh, so my grand, my family is having a pub on the main square in in Leuven. It's called Cambrinus. It's been there for four generations. It goes back to the 1800s. So most of the brewers in Belgium that went to college in Leuven used to come to my grandfather. So when I was touring with my friends, some of the breweries, and they said, and who are you? And I said, well, my name is Bobo van Mecklen. I'm the grandson of Cambrinus. And then they, oh, we used to know your grandfather. So I kind of fell a little bit into the beer world. (laughs) I have have a question for Bobo, because I've always wanted to know this. Why Bobo? Oh, it's the nickname. It's the nickname. I, uh, it's, it's a good story. It's the nickname that I received when I was about 16, uh, 16 years old. We were on vacation on the, on the coast, and I happened to be dancing with the bar owner's wife on top of the bar. And, uh, How'd you do? <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> and uh, they decided to give me a nickname who was a little bit of a cartoon character in Belgium, uh, Bobo. And for some reason, it stuck with me. Now, when I came to uh, to Austin, Texas in 79, Luke van Mecklen is a little bit long for uh, the Texans. And so I said, but I have a nickname, Bobo. And they said, ah, you're a Bubba. I said, no, no, it's Bobo, not Bubba. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to work pretty well if you say Luke van Mecklen from Chimay and nobody knows who I am. But you say Bobo from Chimay, they usually, oh, yeah, I met that guy somewhere. So it well, seems to work. You know, it's a name that easy to it's remember. It's like you're a superhero. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. We've, we've got some superheroes here. I mean, Tim and, and Steve, you guys really have. This book is pretty awesome. So it's like the next generation, or the somehow related to Michael Jackson's books, right? Well, like, so, yeah. I mean, the the um, the publishers. It's 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 originally uh, UK published, uh, which means it's it, it's the UK publishers kind of organize the thing. They are the same people who produced Michael's original book. Um, now. Beer has moved on so far since Michael wrote uh, the first edition of uh, his World Guide in 1977. I mean, the beer scene is unrecognizable compared to then because the problems he had when he was writing his book was just to get the information because beer was down to being, uh, if you like, vibrant in about four different countries only anywhere in the world. There was a good beer scene in Czechoslovakia. There was a good beer scene in the western part of Germany. The beer scene in the UK and Belgium was just on the edge. It was looking as if it might survive, but that was about it. The rest of the world, there was virtually nothing. Now, we come along 40 years later, uh, and we're trying to look at the same subject, and actually, it's the, the world is incomparable because uh, we started off, when we began the book, we knew there was beer in a lot of countries. By the time we finished, we are saying there's about 45 countries in the world where there is an active major craft brewing scene, and there's about another 30 where it looks as if it's coming along. That's such a different world. 
and even in the in the time since we finished the manuscript for the book, because of course there's a lag time between the manuscript and the actual publication of the book. Um, things have happened like Poland in 12 months. Poland has become a vibrant brewing scene, which which just blows my mind that in in a in as little as a year they've managed to do that. Uh, Spain is up and coming. Spain is is really looking exciting now. Um, Tim just went to Romania and he saw some rumblings happening down there. So there's there's a lot going on. And, and frankly, it, it was a daunting task to start with. Uh, Tim and I spent, I think, about an hour and a half or two hours on the phone dividing up the world, saying, <laughs> you know, very Napoleonic. We saying, you know, okay, you take this, I'll take that, et cetera, et cetera. During which I uttered the, the most... The three most regretted words of my life, which was, I'll take Germany. <laughs> um, but it, it, it really was uh, daunting to, to go into it, even thinking that you had some idea of what was going on around the world. By the time we came out of it a year later, I think both of us were reeling that we really hadn't had an idea of exactly how big the beer thing was globally. And it's only getting bigger now. It really is phenomenal to watch. I'm just so psyched to have you guys here. Well, tell me more about Michael Jackson's book. I mean, when, when I first started in the beer business, that was the book I had for reference. And I know for the United States, it was pretty much Anchor Steam and, and a few other closed beer yeah. breweries that are no longer around. Um, how, well, Michael, trace your you know, connection Ma- to Michael, Michael Jackson. Michael was, was certainly a mentor for me. Uh, more a contemporary for Tim because they're they're uh, sorry Tim closer to the same age, <laughs> but relatively true. But but Michael was uh, you know really a, a guiding light for me in terms of when I started writing about beer twenty two years ago, and to go into this book and have it like full of Michael's legacy because essentially we're trying to update what Michael did back in 77 and again in, uh, I forget when the New World Guide came out, somewhere in the early 80s, uh, to, to try to take that mantle and do it. Um, I think it, it was eased certainly by the fact that both of us were friends of Michael and both of us felt that burden of kind of trying to do a good job in his memory. Um, also appeased a bit by the fact that we were using the same publishers as they knew what we were doing and they knew what had come in the past. Um, and I hope that we've we've done his his legacy proud. I really do. Well, it's a really good-looking book. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. There's photos. It, it does have the same feel as one of Michael Jackson's books. Mm-hmm. So, Tim, you're both going on tour for, for the next couple of weeks. Is, is that what's happening? Well, well, what I'm hoping is I'm going to get about two and a half weeks of North American tourism and that uh, Steve is going to be taking the brunt of all the difficult bits like having to do the beer dinners, having to do um, the stand-up and talk stuff. He's doing all the TV stuff. That's fine by me. I'm I'm just going to travel around uh, the U.S. and Canada and enjoy the place really because there's a lot of you, you. You do have a remarkable number of breweries in this country um, and um, I'm, I'm just going to enjoy drinking the beer really. Are there any uh, cities and or special establishments you're looking forward to visiting on your tour? Well, we'll be down in uh, Philadelphia, actually, tonight. Um, we have events at Monk's and the Belgian Cafe tomorrow in Philly. Um, and then on uh, Friday, we're at the Durham Beer Festival 
the World Beer Festival that's done by All About Beer magazine. And then after that, we're down in um, Texas doing uh, events at the Flying Saucers. And then coming back up, we're doing three days of uh, signings at the Great American Beer Festival. Good time to be in America, right? I mean, we we know uh, all about beer fest. We know Win Bassett pretty well, and he's a guy in North Carolina. Do you know him? Win. I know Win because um, I've been on the uh, the beer talk panel for All About Beer magazine for several years, and Win has taken that over. I think about uh, maybe six or seven months ago. Um, so he and I have t- have talked about you know he's picking us up at the airport, and we're going to hang out a bit together. Uh, the Friday night before the World Beer Festival, they've got a brewer's reception thing, and we're going to be there hanging out and then uh, doing a seminar at the uh, at the the beer fest where we talk about exactly how we managed to put this book together implausibly. So, Tim, um, we're, we're going to take a short break now. Um, we're back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio talking more with the authors of The World Atlas of Beer and Bobo from Chimay. You lit me up with all those fancy words just like a fuse Filled my head with love and lies A memory can't erase You're listening to Goodbye by Cherry Holmes on the Heritage Radio Network.org today, recording a special show with the authors of The World Atlas of Beer and Bobo from Chimay. So right now we're drinking an Italian uh, Lambic, Duchess Sec. Um, what was your question, Bobo? Yeah, I had a question for Tim, since Tim, Tim uh, has written a book on Belgian beers, and, and I was under the impression, and that's why I'm asking a question to Tim, is Lambic, is it protected, like, you know, the Trappist name is protected by you know, by the association of the monks, so nobody else can use the, the name Trappist. I was under the impression that Lambic was that particular re- region just outside of Brussels where the Zenef Valley is, and that nobody else could use the name Lambic, but I don't know. Okay, now, now any listeners who are not really dedicated beer geeks had better switch off at this point, because <laughs> this is just a little bit technical. <laughs> the, thing, the thing with the Trappist name is that the, um, the Trappist order... Uh, with backing from the Vatican, basically licensed the use of the term trappist for a beer. So it's 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 um, it's if you like almost a commercial licensing agreement, but it, but from a religious order. Now with with lambic, it is different. It's to do with the European Union, and the European Union has got three levels of uh, 
acknowledgement that a particular product is uh, of a local region or made in a particular way. Now, what, what the Lambic brewers would like to do is get a proper appellation controle, which is what applies to a lot of the wines and various other uh, food and drink products around the EU. They have not achieved that. What they have achieved is a level whereby uh, Lambic is seen as, a, uh, as an official local product. Now, even then it gets interesting because you've, you've got your dozen or so Lambic makers or Lambic blenders in the Peyotenland and Brussels region in Belgium. Um, there's one guy just set up uh, literally a couple of hundred yards, a couple, sorry, a couple of hundred meters. I do yards or meters in the US, but it's, it's, it's whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yards, yards will do. Um, they're, they're roughly the same. South of the boundary for Peyotenland, uh, actually in the French-speaking part of Belgium, and he's set up making what are clearly and obviously very good Gers's, uh traditional style. Uh, I happen to know that coming over the horizon, there's going to be a couple of people who are using, who are blending Peyotenland lumbics, but in another part of Belgium. So will they be given the the same sort of? Uh, it's not technically an appellation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you're not asleep at this point, then then, then congratulations. But um, I think the prob the problem really is is nothing to do with this. The problem is that lambic is a way of making beer that is different from ale. It's different from lager. It is a fundamental substyle of beer. And what's going to be a challenge, I think, in the future is that as there are brewers all around the world who are starting to try to make uh, spontaneously fermented wild yeast beers, should lambic become uh, the a genuine appellation controle for Belgium, and then the other revitalized types of beer around the world that are brewing with wild yeast, they should just be called something else. Mm-hmm. Who, who decides the uh, the appellation? Uh, would that be the Belgian Brewers Association, or no? That would be a worldwide association, or uh, as I understand it, it's a European Union. Oh, it's uh, European uh, Union. yeah. It's a, I, th- I think it's a European Union given qualification. And, then, um, do any do any beers have an appellation? Because I know that um, there's there's a lot of discussion about whether Kolsch in Cologne or Cologne has an appellation or not, and same with alt beer. Well, my my understanding is that there are there are essentially two levels of appellation. Uh, then there is the third level that the Lambics have. Um, it doesn't make much sense to me because the, the Kolsch has, I think, the lower of the two levels of, of Appalachian, but then so do certain other types of beer. And there's one that is really close to my heart, which is that um, there's a type of uh, beer in Britain that is, is, is supposed to be found only in the Rutland area and is basically Ruddles County from about 30 years ago. And somehow, historically, this has managed to get some sort of Appalachian. Now, this, this makes no sense whatsoever. Um, so I think the European Union has to get its act sorted out about what it's saying about beer. And this is quite important for the future because European beers um, come from a lot of different heritages. Uh, They've got a great future in the new world of craft beer around the world. And if the EU could help them to get their... to to become stylized in an historical way in the same way that the American Home Brewers Association gets modern American beers stylized in a modern way... That could be really useful. Great. One reason we asked that question is that we're drinking the Duchess Sec, which is imported by B United. And um, I don't know who makes it, but 
we enjoying it. And Tim, uh, you, you're a Belgian expert. Um, Steve, tell us about your other question. You had. A, I'm just. We're recording in the afternoon. We usually do this at five o'clock and on. Right now, it's early for me. I think it's about two o'clock, but it's a big difference. And Steve, um, what was your question? You said that uh, you wonder where Italians get their lambics. Is that it? Or do no, they not I make actually, lambics? Um, Bobo was asking during the break uh, where the Italian brewers got their lambics. And uh, the Italian brewers that I know have, who have blended um, beers in and um, uh, oh, got Revol- Revolution Cat, Revelation Cat, the Italian brewer, uh, they have definitely uh, forged a good relationship with Cantillon. Um, and it all comes down to one man, uh, a guy named Lorenzo de Bove, who's known as Kowaska. And Lorenzo has been leading Italian beer delegations to Belgium for many years, and he's a good friend of the Cantillon Brewery. Uh, so a lot of the these Italian brewers have forged relationships with Cantillon. So I, I would not be surprised if the Lambique from uh, from any Italian beer that was blended in might be Cantillon. Well, my brain's on right now. It, it, this uh, Duchessec is from Del Borgo, and, and we know the brewer. Um, so, yes. But check it out. I mean, Del Borgo is doing some great stuff. I mean, you, you get to travel a lot in, in the States. You guys are traveling in Europe. What do you think about Italian beers? Uh, well, I... <laughs> <laughs> Who got the Italian beers? That's what I want to do for the world out. I got the Italian. I got the Italian section. Um, and you'll 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 read in the book when you when when you go out and buy it. Uh, <laughs> that I think that the Italians at the time that I pub- that I wrote that the Italians had made more progress in five years in terms of the quality of their beer than any other country I've ever experienced in twenty two plus years of writing about beer. Um, I was over in Milan um, judging beers, and it was two out of every three were kind of like, eh, you know, this is not great. And the third was, this is okay. This is this is good. There were a lot of flawed beers. There, were, there was a lot of problems. And then five years later, just going through the whole Italian beer scene all over again, I was astounded at the the leaps forward they had made. They really had improved tremendously. Yeah, I mean, I, I go with that. I mean, I was very pleased that Steve um, agreed to do the Italian section of the book because it was just so complicated. It was just going to beat me. Um, but but what I would say, what I would say overall was that um, Italy has been the first country in Europe to go out and do its own thing in beer. Uh, it hasn't just imitated what everybody else is doing. It's, it's, it's started to develop its own style. And I see that coming on with two other countries at the moment. Uh, France, which is not seen uh, generally as a beer country, there, there are currently 400 breweries in France. This is, this is extraordinary. It's five times as many as there were 10 years ago. And okay, half of these are going to go bust in the next couple of years. But of the rest, there's going to be some that are going to be world-class brewers within 10 years. And another country coming over the horizon, similar to Italy and France, and it's a wine country, is Spain, where Spain doesn't even have a tradition of being a, brew, a, a beer brewing country. Spain has decided, I think because of restaurants like El Bulli that have just pushed the boundary on food, it's going to push the boundary on beer. And there's some beers already coming out of Spain that are just astonishingly different. And this is really exciting times. It's like 
Europe is imitating what the US has done in the last couple of years or in the last decade or two, uh, but it's doing it European style in that it's, 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 it's doing something in a kind of automatically old-fashioned way uh, and in a funny sort of way, awkward way, rather than the more orderly and businesslike style. And, of and let's not forget Poland, who who are now rediscovering what, I know, rightly or wrongly, I'm not entirely sure because the jury is still out, but are allegedly historic Polish beer styles, and they're recreating them, and uh, and Poland's now becoming a, a major force. Yeah, po- po- Poland is definitely one to watch. The um, Steve and I are both feeling extremely guilty that I think the whole of Poland gets something like three paragraphs in the book. Now, it just so happened six weeks ago, I was in Krakow in the south of Poland, and there are four bars there, which each of which has got a minimum of 80, eight zero different Polish beers. And uh, they're not the same ones in the four bars. You know, between them, you could, if you really wanted to spend a summer holiday there, you could, get, you could do 200 different Polish beers in this one town. And, and that is an astonishing leap forward because when we checked them out 18 months previously, we were really struggling to get more than three or four brewery stories out of them. So. Well, the, the caption here in your book, uh, under the rest of Europe, which is what you have Poland under. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It says, having seen their historic breweries gobbled up by the major multinationals, Poles are gradually turning towards a nascent craft brewing culture. So I guess it's happened. Yeah, we knew something was kind of happening. But but I met the guys who run the uh, Polish uh, beer consumers organization, and they were saying, oh, God, it's really bad. We're struggling to find three or four breweries at the moment. This was 18 months ago, two years ago. And um, just the last six, 12 months, something's changed. There, there's guys making Polish IPAs, and you taste them, and you think, well, yeah, they're not kind of regular IPAs. There's something edgy there. And they've, re- they've reinvented this type of beer, which was a very Polish style, which is a smoked wheat beer. And I, I know some of these guys well enough for them to say, we really don't know what it tasted like originally. But here's three or four different goes at it. And... Each one tastes significantly different, and you think they're all quite nice. Um, I wonder which one bears relationship to the original. Uh, but does, does it really matter? I think the original was brewed like that by many different people in many different small breweries. You it know, may well be, yeah. it may well be. Yeah. And, and, and Tim's point is well made. Does it matter? I mean, if we're and this is what because I I always crack on about how you know. The stylification, if you will, of of beer is is almost to its detriment because we you get people saying, "Well, this is a good beer, but it's not too style." It's like, well, it's still a good beer. Why does it matter that it's not too style? It's still something that you yeah. want to drink. And I think ultimately we have to kind of refocus ourselves to, you know, what? Hey, this is a good beer. This is what I want to drink, and I enjoy drinking. And not get so hung up on whether it's exactly a uh, British style IPA or or what have you. Yeah, I, I don't believe that the great beers of um, years gone by were uh, created by somebody imitating exactly what somebody else did. I think they they probably took a few lessons from what somebody else has achieved and then did it slightly differently. 
that's that to me makes more sense. Well, you hit on a style that, that we're seeing from some of the new small breweries. Um, Barrier, which is based in Long Island, um, I'm actually drinking right now their new beer, Le Piet, which is a smoked wit, and also uh, Frygeist, which is a small brewery out of Cologne, which is breaking. You know, there's a couple small breweries in, in Cologne that aren't just making Kolsch. We actually have a beer that we're going to put on probably this weekend called Hoppedeist, which is also a smoked, smoked wit. So it seems to be your... Can, well, you know, I mean, I, you know I, what's going on. Oh, as, soon, as soon as you come up with something that is supposed to be a really um, uh, button-down style, uh, somebody's going to go and do something that, that, that questions it. And, I mean, even with, even with Kolsch, uh, you've got the, the, the regulated Kolsch brewers, but if you're sitting in Cologne and you're drinking Kolsch, one of the most interesting of the style absolutely to the style is one that isn't allowed to be called Kolsch. So what do you do with that? I mean, I I was in Munich this summer and uh, chased down a Munich IPA. You know, I mean, five years ago, three years ago, would you ever have found a Munich IPA? That's insane. Um, In Toronto, we have a new brewery up that's making waves uh, called uh, Bellwoods Brewing. And they have done a smoked Berliner Weiss for the summer, which is absolutely phenomenal. Does smoked Berliner Weiss exist as a style? No. Should it be at the GABF as a style category for judging? No, it shouldn't. It's ridiculous. But it, it's a really good beer. So, you know, why not? All right. Well, I'm so lucky to be sitting here with Tim Webb and Steve Beaumont from the World Atlas of Beer. It's, it's just out. We're lucky that we're getting them at the start of their tour. <laughs> uh, they might be a little tired in a week or two. And uh, let's give one quick shout-out to our sponsor, greatbrewers.com. Uh, they actually are the distributors of the beers we're drinking tonight, Chimay, as well as uh, the Del Borgo Duchess Sec. And thanks to the Good Beer Sale and Association of 41 New York City Good Beer Bars, including Jimmy's number 43, and where places where you can drink these beers. So, hey, we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Bleeding by Cherry Holmes on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm here with my esteemed guests, Tim Webb and Steve Beaumont, authors of the World Atlas of Beer, and Bobo from Chimay. Tim, uh, tell us about local beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's the, the, one of the ways the world is going is that 
Although the beer trade over 100 years has been about um, building up particular brands that people have got a loyalty to, and they, they always drink the same thing. What's happening at the moment, I think the U.S. is ahead of everywhere else, but the rest of the world is, is going in the direction of the, of, the, of the American market. People want different things. It's a bit like the wine market. Um, and the great thing with beer is that you can brew a good beer anywhere. Um, there, there are some superb examples. We've, we've just spattered the end of our book with, with a few examples of, of stuff. My favorite is Norfolk Island, which most people, unless they collect stamps, have never heard of Northern Ireland. Uh, no, no. <laughs> most people, unless they collect stamps, have never heard of Norfolk Island. That it's about 800 miles off the coast of Australia. It's 800 miles from New Zealand. It's, it's 800 miles from islands called New Caledonia. It's nowhere. Now, in the middle of this is a guy called Woody, and he produces um, New Zealand-style pale ales and I think a porter, I think a stout. In his own little brewery, he's got a good niche market going in Norfolk Island, as I understand it. He's actually got prizes in New Zealand for brewing the best New Zealand-style beers. And this is a guy who's just doing his own thing. And I love this. And, and, and we found other examples in, uh, on uh, Rarotonga in the Cook Islands. Uh, I've had beers brought back to me from Easter Island, which is off uh, about 1,500 miles off the Chilean coast in, in South Pacific. It's getting everywhere. And, and, and that has got to be a future. It's got to be about what you can brew locally and small scale. And um, then there will be some beers, of course, which are just superbly produced by certain producers and they will they will take their market and so they should uh, but but the beer market is going to a really interesting place at the moment that's one of the, the exciting things about about this book and jimmy you can you can turn to the uh the south american section and you can find these amazing breweries that you thought why the hell are there breweries there you know i um, I was down in, down in Mendoza, and Tim was down in Mendoza in Argentina and Brazil. That that little area that's known for winemaking, it's there's a cluster of breweries down there, and Easter Island, which is still uh, oh god, is it? It's an Argentinian possession, uh, isn't it? Chilean, Chilean possession, Chilean possession, Napa Rui, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's a brewery on there that's attached to a hotel. It's just, it's phenomenal to find these breweries happening in places where logic dictates they shouldn't be. I mean, you know, the the craft brewery market in South America is about 0.2 of a percentage point of the overall beer market. But it's growing. And the Brazilians, you know, I mentioned earlier on about the Italian learning curve and how they came up in five years. In Literally in a year and a half, uh, the Brazilian brewers, particularly in Curitiba, which is halfway between Sao Paulo and the southern Brazilian border, um, they have just gone astronomically forward. Just phenomenal beers. I still have a magnum of Peragosa from uh, Bodebraun in Curitiba in my fridge at home that I'm just trying to find enough people around to to uh, to drink because it's a 9.5% double IPA. <laughs> and it's like, you don't want to order open a magnum of that when it's just you yeah. and you need to make tasting notes. But uh, but it really is phenomenal that, that these beers are busting out all over. I have, uh, I have a few more uh, questions for, for you guys. Uh, 
what's the the future in the Far East and, and Africa, for example? Ah, that's that's two well, separate questions. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> start with the far. Let's start with China, maybe. Well, I mean, the Far East is is really interesting. I mean, you've got Japan, where you've got about 250 new breweries, of which I would reckon about 80 to 90 are extremely high quality. They're producing stuff that's as good as the best craft brewers in the U.S., and they deserve a market. Um, you then look at China, and the, and the and the position is very different. If the Chinese drink one liter of beer more on average, uh, <laughs> per, per year, that 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 wipes out the total production of micro, uh, sorry, of craft brewers in uh, North America. That's that's the, that's the size of the difference. But the international brewers are assuming that China will be their salvation for those sorts of reasons. Uh, however, China's coming out of Maoism; it's going into capitalism. Um, China is uh, going, moving away from everybody being the same into uh, the glorifying things being different. Are they seriously all going to go for the same beer brand? I suspect not. Also, this is a country where food is... Uh, they, they, they relish the flavors of different things. That, to me, plays into the hand of craft beer. Final fact about China, the brewing schools in China uh, were all... Uh, have all been uh, kind of uh, supported by German brewery uh, Braumeisters. Very clever move on the part of the Germans. So you've got this new generation of Chinese brewers who are being trained to appreciate high standard production. Are they seriously going to carry on making snow lager? I don't think so. So I I see everything converging and maybe China is going to be the point at which uh, the future of beer is determined to be far more about difference in quality and flavor than it is about standardization and everybody buying the same thing because the adverts are good. Two other uh, really important Chinese notes, I think, is that China is now a hop-producing country. We have a map in, um, in the atlas about hop-producing nations and, and regions, and China is, is still young in terms of hop produce, production, but it is stepping up. So... Ultimately, China could become a major hop producer, which is important because right now China is producing twice as much beer as a country than the next largest beer producing country in the world, which is the U.S. So you're, you're talking about a phenomenal amount of, uh, of beer. And the hops are obviously they're high alphas. That's what the big brewers want. That's what they're, you know, they're craving. But as craft beer starts to get a hold in China, I can see a lot more specialty hop production starting up in there. And the other thing is to remember that the Chinese do appreciate quality. You know, I, I had a meeting um, a little while ago with the brand uh, ambassador for Louis uh, Tres or Louis Thirteenth Cognac, which is a $2,700 a bottle Cognac. And he told me that the vast majority of their sales are in duty freeze on the way back to China. And that's because the Chinese can buy this high-quality cognac, which is actually really good. And they know it's... (laughs) (laughs) But they know it's authentic. And that's a big deal for them. They know it's the real deal. So authenticity and quality is becoming an increasingly important thing for the Chinese. 
and and I think that that's a market that is really really worth watching in beer in the future. Let's go back to local. Um, so Tim, you brought a an English beer that's pretty unusual. Want to tell us about that? Uh-huh, we have yeah. that in our glass right now. Well, I, in the middle of all this. Um, stuff about craft beer the uk has got a problem we 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 can claim to have kicked off the original beer revolution uh, in part because of the campaign for real ale back in 1971 and a kind of outcry against uh, bad quality beer taking over and good quality good quality beer to come back and in part because of michael jackson who was uh, despite all things he was british and uh, we, we 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 pack a bigger punch However, the actual breweries in the UK have felt a little bit held back by that kind of thing. They, they only want to produce cast-conditioned light ales, which is the big British thing. Now, the beer we've got here is one of the beers that is uh, kicking against that would be a wrong way to put it, but it's, it's emerging out of what's happening now. This is one of the St. Austell Brewery in St. Austell in Cornwall. Uh, it's uh, a regional brewery. It's the nearest regional brewery in the UK to New York, as it happens. Um, now, the guy who is the head brewer there produces some excellent beers for the real ale trade in the UK. But they, the uh, owners of the brewery have just bought him a microbrewery, and they, they put it inside the old brewery, and he's allowed to play with some of the existing brands, which is a very long-winded introduction to saying, this is Smuggler's... Uh, ale, which is uh, traditionally a six seven percent beer, it's quite dark. Except this one, he's done Grand Cru in his microbrewery. This is thirteen percent. Uh, this is this is aged for quite a long while. This is um, a heavy beer. It comes out in seventy five uh, centiliter bottles. This is not at all the British tradition. But on the other hand, that's the seven fifty mil for those of you who are not <laughs> centiliter. Right. Yeah. Oh God, it's probably, it's probably something in fluid ounces as well. But uh, the <laughs> imperial, no. Um, the um, anyway, look. This is um, this is a massive beer. It's a thirteen percent. It's a barley wine style. Uh, it mimics the history of Snostel Brewery, which was always famous in the southwest of England for producing quite strong beers. Um, but it's a beer that he can produce because he can, and that's one of the great things about. Um, the new brewers who have got a future because of their professional skills. They managed to get their breweries to allow them to produce something that is really spectacularly different. And, and, and I'm sat here, I've been sat here the last few minutes drinking this beer. It's the first time I've actually tried it. And I'm thinking, my God, that's British. Wow, we, might, we actually might just arrive on the scene eventually. <laughs> and <laughs> But uh, yeah, this is, this is a good example of it. It's... it's um, whether, whether or not it, the Cornish would see it as local to their tradition, I don't know. But they would probably be very proud that it's come out of a local brewery. I have to agree with you, Tim. I, I, it, it, there's something about this beer that tastes very British. Even with that alcoholic mm-hmm. oomph that it's got to it, there's no mistaking it for a Belgian no. or, a, or a Dutch or even an American beer. It, it, there's something very distinctly British about this. Tim, um, when you came in earlier, you said that you had had a couple before yeah. the show. What beers did you have before you came in today? Oh my God! I, I, I <laughs> well, I've been I've been in the U.S. for about twenty four hours, and one of the things that has impressed me since the last time I was here, only about a year ago, is that a lot of 
ordinary regular bars have got some uh, craft beers of the more popular variety, but they seem to be everywhere. So I've had a Lagunitas IPA. I have had a, what else have I had, Steve? Six points toasted lager. Thank you. I've had, that's it. I, and uh, I had two others from a brewery called Kelso, uh, one of which was a huge success and was, it was an unfortunate name, but I, I gather it's called Fuku. <laughs> Fuku. Okay. That's the, mom, the Momofuku uh, custom beer, which yeah, I don't know what it is. But. Oh, I, I'm British, so I looked at the name. Where, where did you have these beers? Oh, uh, oh amazing place. Um, we, had, we had them at Good Beer. Good beer. The, the, fir- the first, the first, the first two was at just a restaurant, but then we went over to Good Beer between um, first and A on Ninth. He's Ninth, yeah. yeah. And let me tell you, as as, as uh, a beer writer for the last thirty years, who I've been there and I've done most things, I, I walked into that place and I just thought that is exactly the sort of store we need loads of in the UK. Um, I, I just walked in and I thought, wow, wonderful. Anyway, uh, that that's I. I'm, I hope he's listening when I say this. Um, <laughs> it's a great expression of, of the whole beer scene in New York now. These these cool hybrid beer stores where you, you can get a pint and you can get a growler fill. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot opening up in the city. I think it's a very sensible idea. I mean, it, it, what you need in the beer world around the around the world is is what do you uh, want if you are a beer drinker? What do you want? Do you want to go somewhere, sample a few, and then buy a few? If so, what's wrong with that? Why not address your licensing systems to allow that to happen? So I spent a lot of time in New York uh, in the 90s when really it was difficult to find a bar restaurant that wasn't specialty like DBA or, or what have you, but just, just an ordinary place that didn't have anything more than Heineken and Amstel because New York was then known as the, you know, the the, the import beer place. It was not what you drank. It was the bottle that you drank it from. And, uh, you know, once 2000 hit, New York just changed so much. And, uh, you know, I, I often think about my my old friend um, and brewery owner, Kirby Shire, who ran Zip City back in the day. And Zip City, you know, it got some, some grief from some of the local beer people because, I don't know, it was... There was politics involved that I'm not entirely aware of, but I always enjoyed Zip City's beers, and ultimately Zip City died because he couldn't do the rent thing. Uh, but you know, now Zip City fits in perfectly with what's happening in beer in New York, and it would honestly be just you know just a normal stop on the beer circuit in this city now. Uh, but you know, New York, New York is is one of the, definitely one of the best places to drink beer in in the United States now, simply because of those pioneering efforts and because now you can go almost anywhere and get a decent beer. And as a tourist, I, have to say, I love those tall buildings. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know coming up, a sink, there's some new breweries opening in New York. Single Cut Beer Smith, Rich Buchetta, who's been on our show. We're waiting for his brewery to open up in, in Queens. Uh, there's Rockaway Brewing, which which is like a, a super micro, like one you know one barrel nano in in Queens as well. And a couple other guys uh, are contracting, like Alphabet City Brewing, and uh, 
you know, some outside of the city, Spider Bite, you know. So there's a lot of new new guys making beer in the city. I think there's going to be a lot more. And I like what you said, you know, at the time of uh, Kirby Shire and Zip City, I mean, there were quite a few small brew pubs and small breweries in the city, and most of them most of them uh, went out of business. Yeah. Um, I think now you're going to look, we look forward to seeing a lot more in New York. I just uh, hope Rockaway Brewing does a summer beer called Rockaway Beach. <laughs> you gotta. <laughs> well, for a while, the only place you could get Rockaway Brewing was at Rockaway Beach. And they've been to a few places like Jimmy's number 43. Um, you guys are great. Uh, we, you know, we, we're going to wrap up the show in a minute. Um, again. Before you do, Jimmy, I've got one important piece of news. We've remembered the name of the Austrian Trappist Brewery. It's Stift Engelzell. Okay. That sounds, you got to say that again in an English accent. Stift, that's S-T-I-F-T, Engelzell, E-N-G-E-L. I don't think that's going to pass the uh, the state board of liquor or whatever in many states. Stift, you know. And that was without, I got stiffed on stiffed. That was without Google. That was just us coming together and trying to figure out the yeah. name. Well, you guys wrote the goddamn World Atlas of Beer. So again, Tim Webb, Stephen Beaumont, World Atlas of Beer. By the time the show airs, you'll have finished your tour, but just know that we're their first stop on, on the tour. And, again, Bobo from Chimay. Everyone knows you as Bobo. Yes, sir. We're, we're going to take a little break, and we're going to go hang out and have a couple more beers at Jimmy's number 43. We're sitting in the back room where, where all the kegs are being moved around, and uh, you guys have been very gracious, but we're really happy to get you guys. Um, also, when this show airs, uh, we'll be promoting uh, November 6th. Don't miss the Heritage Radio Network's exclusive election night coverage. I'll be there, and, and Mike Edison from the Mike and Judy Show and a couple other hosts will be watching the election results come in and provide a fresh perspective on American politics and policy. Tune into the live stream election night, November 6th. Hopefully what we'll be doing is, is going across the country, talking to the, some breweries and swing states and uh, getting a little you know, cross-section of America. In closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at greatbrewers.com have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. We're also supported by the Good Beer Seal. Thanks to Tim, Stephen, Red, and Bobo for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Jack Inslee and Brie O'Connor, and our engineer, Joe Galarraga. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. No.